it got to the point where it's like, well, no, I'm not going to wait to see this movie ends. I'm out of this thing. And I got out and took my, it was, it was probably the biggest trading loss mm. I ever, ever actually took. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And I want to thank you for joining that mission today. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guests, Harley Bassman. Harley, are you ready to join the mission? Rock and roll, man. <laughs> Literally. So let me introduce you to the audience. Harley is an industry thought leader and commentator on macroeconomic issues spanning decades. He spent 26 years at Merrill Lynch. And from 2014 to 2017, Harley was an executive VP and portfolio manager at PIMCO. In 2011, he joined Credit Suisse's Global Rates and in 2006, he built the Rate Lab, a full-spectrum U.S. rates trading desk strategy group. Presently, Harley is a managing partner at Simplify Asset Management. He continues to pen an episodic macroeconomic commentator as well as manage a hedge fund of one. Harley has a BA in management science from the University of California, San Diego, and an MBA in finance and marketing from University of Chicago, Harley, take a minute and tell us about the unique value you are bringing to this wonderful world. <laughs> well, you, as you can tell from, uh, I guess, both of our hairstyles, uh, old age. So uh, this reminds me of uh, my very first job on Wall Street. So I, I went from college to business school. You could do that once upon a time. And so I uh, I get my first job at Drexel Burnham on the trading desk there. And my boss has a sign on his desk. And I didn't like the sign at all. But now I look from store to store for this sign, age and treachery will win out over youth and skill. And so now I am old and treacherous. <laughs> okay, so age and treachery will, will, I can understand the age will win out because maybe we've been through all those battles, but what does it mean, treachery? Just Bad behavior? No, it, it, it's a matter of just, of just being quick on your feet and right. having seen the movie before, you know, it's never different this time. So as, as a early plug over here, I write a uh, macroeconomic commentary every four, six, eight weeks, whenever I'm in the mood. Mm. It's all posted on convexitymaven.com. Yep. My email's there. Just send me an email address and I'll add you, I'll add, add you to it. So it's, mm. it's all free. And it's I wouldn't call it easy reading, but it's um it's okay. It's okay. And how do you approach macroeconomics? Where's your mind when it comes to that? I'll have a link in the show notes, by the way, so people can check on that. I try to work with common sense, which sounds sounds like a juvenile thought, but it really isn't. Like when I, when I was at Merrill and we had new MBAs come on in for training, they knew a lot. They were, like they were all smarter than me. They could program and they could do this, and they could do that. They did not have common sense and they didn't have it because it wasn't required. What's required to get from college to grad school to MBA to Wall Street, you have to be able to work a spreadsheet. You have to be able to get the right answer on a test. You have to evaluate, you know, how to create a number or something. But actually sitting back and thinking like, does this make sense to me? That's not required to actually go and get a job and succeed, at least in your early years. 
that usually takes uh, getting uh, hit in the head with a baseball bat to learn that. So like, well, I can talk about it in option terms. I'll talk about it in simple terms. I don't skydive. Now, I would love to skydive, by the way. I think it would be tremendous yeah. fun. If you like put hot fudge Sundays as a utility of, of 10 and sex as a utility of 100, skydiving might be a utility of, of, a, of a million. It would be great. But you got to go and, you know, PV that whole concept. So you have to take the odds of me having my skydive mm-hmm. at, you know, a million of, of utility times 0.99999 and then pull in the cord and just having cord and you're very high up. So you're going to fall for a long ways before you hit the ground. You have time to think about things. That's negative infinity of utility. And so 0.001 times negative infinity is negative infinity and thus I don't skydive. Mm-hmm. That's funny because I was, remember, I went back, I haven't been in North America for a long time. And many years ago, I went back to visit my sister and, you know, she's into skiing and her kids are, and we, all the kids got together and we went to ski slopes and I got to the top of that mountain. And I thought to myself, I haven't been skiing in about 20 years. The risks of me breaking my leg are really, really high. And I just said, you guys go ahead. And I just like carefully and slowly went down that mountain. But I also thought to myself, ah. I don't think it's worth it for me to ski if I'm not doing it on a regular basis. And so I kind of stopped that, what I consider to be high risk, you know, behavior for me because I wasn't training it. But the death part is not a part of skiing, just the discomfort of breaking the leg and all the other implications. But the death part is <laughs> the infinity, I, I guess. I think if you really snapped your leg off on top of a mountain, you might wish you were dead. But I mean, if you think about it, common sense, skiing is pure idiocy. You're slapping on two pieces of wood and sliding down a mountain of ice. That's kind of stupid if you think yeah. about it. Yeah, well, hopefully my sister doesn't hear that or else you may get a, you know, a letter. Now, I'm just curious, you know, I look at the U.S. after 31 years of being out of the country and it's just, it's kind of baffling what's happening. What I, what I remember when I was young was that there were some responsible people around who, you know, did responsible things, like kept things, budgets in in balance and tried to do that. But now it seems like that's just impossible. And now it's gone so far with government spending, government debt, the Fed coming in. And it's just like, where does it end? You know, you could, there's two different paths to go think about this. You know, Mm. one of them is that we had the GFC in 08, 09, and the Fed printed money to go and, and salvage the, the banking system. And mm. are the bankers good guys? No, they, they, they should, a lot of them should have gone to jail. But we need the banking system. We're, we're a financial world. You need the, and we're the plumbing. The banking is lost well, the plumbing. So you, gotta, you have to save the plumbing. You could have got, got rid of some of the plumbers. But then the Fed comes in and they, and they print money and they wanted to create inflation. And they wanted to create inflation because we had too much debt. Mortgage debt, corporate debt, government debt. Only way you get out of debt is to either grow, right? So the ratio goes down or and, you default. And keep the debt the same yeah. level, yeah. right? That was after World War II. You know, you have the, the economy grow faster than the debt and you bring it back in balance. The other way is default. Like the debt just goes away. Defaulting is, is unpleasant because people lose their jobs. So the better idea is inflation. Inflation is basically a slow motion default as the value of what you're getting back in the future is reduced. It's effectively a silent tax across the entire country. Everyone pays it and no one sees it. I mean, it's hard to raise taxes on the middle class, but you can raise them on the rich, but you can tax the rich 100% and that won't solve your problem. 
Inflation is a way you tax the middle class, the great majority of the people, and no one really complains about it. And as long as it stays at one, two, three percent, you're okay. When it gets up to six, seven, eight, nine, then you got a problem. Mm. Fed printed money, tried to create inflation, and lots of naysayers say they didn't. That is false. There's tons of inflation. It was asset inflation, stocks, bonds, houses, cars, boats, gold, art. It all went up. Yep. And the problem you had was to get to win with asset inflation, you had to have assets. Well, who has assets? The rich. So we basically had this widening out of the uh, wealth income disparity. And that's really where I think caused the problems is widening out. Is the Fed at fault? Yes. Was it intentional? No. They were trying to do a good deed by creating inflation to devalue the debt and the big asset inflation. And this, I would say, this is why you have Trump. It's creating this widening, widening gap of income and wealth. And then the fiscal policy came in with COVID, and that finally got the real labor wage inflation, which has now really kind of jumped things up. And this is a problem. The other issue really is um, seemingly this idea of um, we're no longer a community. We're no longer a team. The individual is more important than the group. And why is that? maybe Twitter, maybe other things, unclear. But I mean, you've lost the ability to go and do something for the team, to sacrifice for the team, to compromise for the team. Our politicians, they don't compromise at all. It's all or nothing. It's a win or it's not. Mm. And when you do that, you end up with um, a bad situation when you're trying to operate as a, as a team, as a country. And we, we've lost that ethic. Why? Maybe it's linked to finance. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But that certainly is the biggest problem we have now in our politics. And, and you can feel else. that. You can feel that in, you know, when you look at your span. I mean, sometimes as we get older, we look back at things and it, we think that they're the glory days. And I'm just curious if, you know, to what extent do you really clearly see that difference compared to the past? I mean, I mean, look. Were the good old days that good? I mean, in my lifetime, you had we had black and white water fountains, for God's sakes. I'm a little older than you are. So, I mean, I'm not sure the girls were all that good, right. but they're different. I mean, I live in a community, and I'm on the board of this community. And when you want to build a house, you know, tear it open, build a new one, you have to apply. And it is becoming more and more difficult to manage this process, when these people come in, they buy the property and they want to do what they want to do. And maybe this house is not harmonious with the rest of the community and is not, and other things that where it's not, you know, we, we have an old community in California and we want to kind of keep it in this kind of, I won't say rustic, but kind of low key California way. People want to come in and build a, you know, 10,000 foot house with 10 cars. It's like, really, man? It's like that kind of doesn't fit into what we want over here. We're mm. not ostentatious. We're like this low key. And and how do you go and control these people who they want to come in here and do what they want to do and they don't want to go and, you know, compromise in the community? And the word compromise has become a dirty word everywhere. Mm. I mean, even, you know, I'll make, a, you know, this is not one of my worst trades, although right. I guess some of them could be is I'll invest in a, in a startup of some kind mm. where, where I know the person and, and it's a good idea and it might work, <clears throat> but I won't, but it might work. Most of these most of the time, what I've found is the person will get the project to a place and then he's kind of gotten his level because there's only one person and it's time to go and he will no longer own 80% of the company. He's going to own 40. 
mm. or 50 or 60, whatever, maybe, maybe it'll be 40. He will no longer be in control and own the whole thing. He does not want to do that. Mm. She wants to go, he wants to go and keep control of this thing and not sell any equity at all. And that's usually when these things go, you know, on the rocks. It's ego, it's control, it's, it ends up, I mean, my comment always is, isn't a half loaf better than no loaf? Mm. And my experience is people, they want the whole loaf and the whole thing goes into the tank mm. over and over and over again. I mean, this is why like, we still read the Greek tragedies from, you know, 3,000 years ago. I mean, you know, 300 BC, we read Shakespeare. What, what is always the downfall of man? We still read these books for the same reason. It's hubris. It's ego. Right now, we have the same problem. I mean, we got one, you know, by definition, narcissist who's running for president again. It's always hubris or ego mm. that is the killer. Yeah. And it's never different this time. And it's, it's just over and over and over again. It, it It's not an exact repeat, but it always rhymes in history. But somebody mentioned something to me. I was reading something. I can't remember, but. It's they were referring to Plato's Republic. And so I I got it and started reading it. And then you just realize, like, yeah. It's yesterday. It's, it's yeah. So for anybody listening, that's a great reminder to go back to the classics. If you want to understand what's happening in the world, humans haven't changed. Now, I would say that maybe our tools that we have in society now, mainly coming from mobile phones, are firing up those, they're intensifying the human frailties. You know, Harley, I teach a class in ethics and finance here in Thailand, and I just kicked off my latest one. And I had about ethics and finance, like jungle strip. Yeah, no, that's it can do. And I had 80 students and I asked them this simple question. I ask all everywhere I go to present, I ask the same question. Raise your hand if you think you are not addicted to your mobile phone. And what percent of people do you think raise their hand? The liars. Yeah. Zero. Yeah. Zero. And sometimes I think, you know, as I said to them, I said, you know, one day the youth of this world just may rise up and wake up to the fact that the adults, maybe they didn't do their adult work on allowing kids, you know, to do the things that they've been doing, particularly the mobile phone the destructiveness of that, you know, there's lots of good, but the destructiveness of it, I don't think that any of us thought, if you remember Harley back in the seventies, when calculators came out, Texas Instrument and others, there was people that were saying, look, if we use these calculators, young people are not going to be able to do arithmetic in their head. They're not going to be able to do long division or multiplication, or they're not going to be able to do any of that. And, And that was like, you know, some crazy, you know, group of people at that time. Well, of course, that was right. Now, do we stop using calculators? No, but there is a consequence. And so we saw the consequences. I think about my father who did, you know, all of that calculations in his head. And now I don't. So there's a consequence for everything. Now, I just wanted to talk about what you're doing at Simplify for a couple of minutes because I think it's important for listeners to understand just a little bit more about, you know, a lot of people that are are my listeners are investing in mutual funds and they're investing in mutual funds in markets that may not even have ETFs or other ways of accessing those fund strategies. Now, in some cases, I've got listeners that absolutely are accessing ETFs beyond mutual funds. 
but I would be grateful if you could just kind of explain about, you know, a little bit about the background of what you're doing and why you're doing it at Simplify. So, I mean, most of everything on Wall Street in finance, if you took ninth grade stat, that's all you need to know. It's not much further than that. Of course, not many people like ninth grade stats. That's a problem. But I mean, the math is not more complicated than that. Yep. The old idea of a mutual fund was people go and pool their money together and one person or one team manages that money because they're specializing in investing because everyone can't do everything, you know. So you you hire a professional and you do it, you know, in a big group. So each person puts in $1,000, but all of a sudden you might have $100 million in this pool and he'd charge you, you know, a low fee. You can put your money in once a day or take it out once a day at four o'clock New York time when the market closed. And you would get in or out at the closing price of the market. And that was it. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It is what it was, it is what it is. The ETF is basically taking that mutual fund and putting it on the stock exchange so you can get in and out all day long. Are you supposed to go and be buying and selling all day and trading it for speculation? That wasn't the idea, but you're welcome to do it. But the idea was the market goes down in the morning and you want to go and get into the market at, you know, 10 o'clock New York time, as opposed to wait until four o'clock when the market might be higher. And by the way, you have to put your order in by one o'clock. So you don't even know what price you're getting in at, right? Could be higher or lower by four. So that was the basic ETF is taking mutual funds, and then you could take, you could have a, a healthcare mutual fund or a tech mutual fund or an oil fund or a defense fund. And you have about 10, 20 stocks in there. So that was basically kind of, you know, ground zero, level one of ETFs. What happened was next, five years ago, the SEC changed the rules and allowed us to put derivatives, futures, options, and other things into ETFs. They weren't allowed before. Hmm. My company simplify. That's what we start. That's what we did. We started making ETFs that you could put derivatives into. I'm a derivatives expert. That's why I was at Maryland 26 years, Wall Street 35 years. I was a derivatives guy. Uh, primarily so, options, but everything, everything else that's not you know in that world. So to to simplify, let's yeah. imagine a typical person has a typical 60-40 portfolio of 60% stocks, 40% bonds. Yep. They, you know, they're 40, 45, 50 years old, you know, maybe it's 70% stocks, whatever. But there's some stocks and there's some bonds and they're open for things that could either reduce their risk or enhance their returns. What would be a, a simple example of a type of derivative that would, you know, come into an ETF that would enhance that return so, or protect its downside? I don't know. Level one, person has his money, he goes and he buys 70% of SPY, that's the basic broad equity index, yep. and he buys 30% of like, you know, some five-year investment grade ETF, where they, where yep. they buy high-grade corporate bonds, five-year maturity. That's level one. Level two, what we would do is this, we would go and buy futures contracts on the five-year or the 10-year treasury, listed on the Chicago exchange, trades like water, Mm. okay? We would go and put that into an ETF. Now, there's no cash required for that. We would take the cash and maybe invest that into some short-term, it's like like a three-month T-bill. And 
because I won't go to the details, mm. but when you buy that treasury futures contract, there might be an implied interest rate, a borrowing cost of, let's say, four and a half percent. And maybe I can go and buy treasury bills at 5%. I would now own the interest rate exposure of the five-year tenure contract, but I pick up an extra half percent because I put the cash into a treasury security or some other high-grade security. Now, this, by the way, is not genius. This is what PIMCO did. Mm. PIMCO was the first investment bond manager to use derivatives in a large mutual fund. And mm. so now theoretically, you have leverage, which sounds bad, everyone hates leverage, because if you have $1,000, you bought $1,000 of treasury futures and $1,000 of T-bills, well, you have $2,000 of investments, but only $1,000 of money. So it sounds like you're levered two to one, but you're not because that one month T-bill has no risk to it, right? Now, if you, I mean, you could buy other stuff, but I mean, that basic structure is leverage. I would call that balance sheet leverage. You have hmm. two items on your on your piece of paper. It's not risk leverage. Now, if you bought two futures contracts, will that be real risky leverage? Hmm. So you got it. When you talk about leverage, you got to talk about is it balance sheet leverage where the risk is unchanged, or is it economic leverage? You really have more risk. Per movement. Okay, so let's let's take a step back for a second and just understand this type of instrument or this type of trade that you've described. Is the regulation that that must be in an ETF on its own, or no? You can just bring that strategy into any ETF. I could do whatever I want. I could, I could put it in any ETF I want. I mean, I could make a very simple ETF of just Treasury bond futures, and we have that. We actually have two ETFs where we have that exact one way on the two year, one way on the five year, but you can also you know, use futures in other ways where it's additive. So you, you'd buy 10 year futures contracts as opposed to 10 year treasuries as a way to get exposure to interest rates because it's more efficient. And so we do that. And we also do, we have really, I don't call them sexy, but kind of crazy trades. Like a trade I created two years ago was to buy a seven year put on the 30 year treasury. That's PIFIX, P-F-I-X. Hmm. That's my baby. We brought this public two years ago at 50. It went down to 37 as rates went you know, down hmm. two years ago. It's now trading at 102. So it's basically a triple from where it was a year and a half ago. And all this trade was, was a seven-year put, which decays very slowly. It's not like a one-month option that disappears right. in a blink. It's a seven-year option, man. It's very, very stable. And it was a way to go and buy long-term insurance in case rates went higher. And it, it worked very well. But the trick was you can't buy a seven-year option anywhere except as a professional on Wall Street. And so we have what's called ISDA, I-S-D-A, agreement. They're hard to get. We have four of them. We have one with each counterparty, one with Goldman Sachs, one Morgan Stanley, one Bank America, one J.P. Morgan. And so we can trade with them as a professional, but then take these professional tools and jam them into an ETF. And that's really what we're doing here is we are going and taking professional investment products that civilians, ordinary investors cannot get and putting them into ETFs. 
I'm not trying, we're not trying to make up crazy things with crazy right. risks. You so know? let's take, let's take that one that you've just talked about that. Okay. How would that have, if you're thinking about an ordinary investor that is looking at how to improve and access these tools now that, that institutional investor, you know, gets. So you've said the benefit of, of what you're doing is number one, they're just going to get access to the institutional market, let's say, or the institutional options. And the second is they're going to get the ability to get in on a trading idea of a professional in that space that you put into an ETF wrapper. And I'm assuming that that ETF is just a standalone, tr that trade, right? There's no other. Okay. okay yeah. So they're going to get a pure exposure to that. And now yeah. if they had a 60, 40, or even let's, we could simplify and just say hundred percent stock portfolio, what would be the benefit of adding, I don't know, 5%, 10% of this trade into that strategy, into that we their own portfolio? We recommend doing 5% relative to the part of your portfolio that's industry driven. Mm. So if you were 60, 40, and if you said my stocks have no rate risk, which is not true, but let's say they have no rate risk, so you had 40% bonds, well, you want 5% of that, so you'd buy 2%. Of PIFIX, right? 5% mm. of 40 is going to be uh, 2%. That's how you do it. And it would just smooth out your portfolio. So if rates went up, you'd make money on that product. It would offset your losses in your rate products. And it's very slow decay. And if you go back into my my website, convexitymaven.com, yep. go look back two years. I wrote up a, uh, something called Helicopter Defense. And that was the product description, basically. Mm. And it'll explain how the product works and what it does. So that's the thing. It's just offering a relatively simple, straightforward idea to civilians because they can't get it ordinarily. And now, we can also do crazy stuff. I can do crazy stuff also in these things, but in general, yeah. we don't. We just try to make it very simple. So we're called Simplify. Yes, exactly. And my last question is that are these strategies small and not very liquid? Or if someone wanted to get into this particular strategy that you've created, What's the size or the AUA or the assets under management or, you know, or whatever the, the measure is? Oh, Pivix got to 450 million last year. Okay. It's about 250 million now and trades, it averages about 150,000, 200,000 shares a day. Okay. I mean, it, 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 trades, it trades very liquid. Yep. So, yeah. Okay, great. Well, that's a great, you know, lesson on kind of on ETFs, number one, and what's happening. And it's also, you know, let, let me ask you one last thing is that if somebody's, you know, going through ticker codes and looking at this stuff, where should they be going to find out more? Should they be going to Simplify's website yeah. or is it? There... <laughs> go, go to, go to simplify.us. Yep. You have our whole menu there. Yep. But by the way, let me just finish the story. Yes, please. We had mutual funds close at four o'clock every day. Hmm. Level one ETF was saying, I'm going to have that mutual fund and I can buy and sell all day long. Level two is I'm putting derivatives, futures and options in it. Level three, which is going to start to happen soon, is we make these ETFs active. So what you're going to see happen over time is hedge funds migrate into ETF form. And that way you get rid of all these high fees because, you know, well, I mean, the market, the market won't take it. So mm -hmm. um, you're going to see active ETFs. They're not, they're, they're not really here yet. But that'll be level three is active ETFs. So putting hedge funds into ETFs. Those and are, are you saying that are you saying that in, I don't know, five years or 10 years, we won't really have the we won't really have much AUM in in the mutual fund structure? You'll still have a lot of hedge funds out there. 
But the two and twenty, the market will get rid of that yeah. fee structure. It's just, it's just, I mean, as I people like to say, is a, a hedge fund is a um, a compensation scheme masquerading as NASA class. <laughs> well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever, and since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it, and then tell us your story. Well. I'm a U Chicago MBA. I'm a monetarist. I'm a value investor, which is why I've never owned any tech, much to my sadness, mm. because I mean, these the PEs and every ratio of these tech stocks is always nuts. And I was looking at the banking sector that got hurt a while ago. This is before COVID. Mm. And the banks have finally come back and the economy is doing fine. And the banks are all trading above book value, except Citibank. And Citibank is trading not only below its book, it's trading below tangible book. What does that mean? When a bank goes and buys another bank, it takes the bank onto its books at where it kind of bought the thing at. Mm. But let's let's say a bank is worth 100 and you pay 120 for it. Well, what do you do with the 20 bucks? That you overpaid. Now, the 20 bucks is probably for the name of the company, for its client base, lots of other intangible goodies mm. where there's value. You know, it's rare you buy a company for just the value of its, you know, buildings and assets. Usually there's, you, there's a value for the ongoing concern of, of it. And most banks trade ab above that level. Citibank was the tangible book, and that 20 bucks is called goodwill. Mm. And it gets put on the balance sheet because I got to put it somewhere. And it'll show up as, as part of book value because you don't want to take a loss on it right away, an accounting loss right away. Mm. Citibank was built by lots, by Sandy Wild, by buying lots of smaller banks and other institutions and putting them together. Of course, the great irony is Jamie Dimon was working for Sandy Wild in the early, you know, 90s. And he was like the genius guy out there. And he should have gotten the job as being the boss. But unfortunately, Sandy gave the job to his daughter instead. That was a bad idea. And off Sandy went and he became head of JP Morgan, which is now the best bank in the world. That was a sidetrack. So Sandy puts together all these various institutions in the Citibank and has a book value maybe 100. But if you strip away all the goodwill, the tangible book, which is just the value of all the bonds it owns, of its buildings, of everything else, after the depreciation, it's basically the value of this company if you could sell it for scrap tomorrow. I mean, really, I mean, Citibank, which is one of the two big to fail banks, is going to trade at scrap value. That seemed unlikely to me. So I went and I bought some calls and sold some puts on Citibank stock for a zero cost strategy. And I figure stocks to go up because, you know, as it catches up to its peers, they're all trading above their book value. But Citibank, you know, will go and along with it. I'll can can you explain why you didn't just buy the share? As you said, you're expecting the share to go up. Uh, why um, did you do the, the strategy that you did? Because I had I had my cash invested in muni bonds paying 4%. And I, I'm in a high tax bracket. So it's like an, it's almost like an 8% yield for like AA rated California bonds. So you didn't want to so, take that huge chunk of cash that you had and deploy it into having to no. buy all those shares for right. the full amount. Okay. It was more. It was also. It was. It was speculative to some degree. Yeah. But I felt. I felt. I said. You know. 
the stock's not going to go much below mm. tangible. It kind of can't. Like, it's kind of silly, yeah. isn't it? And if it did go below, I, I, I could probably buy the shares. I, I wouldn't mind that. Well, comes COVID and everything goes south and Citibank goes south. You know what? Through a goose. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at this thing trading like, you know, 70% tangible. And it's like, oh, my God. I just really didn't think it could get there. I mean, in theory, it could. But I just didn't think about that. And this is where, I mean, there's lots of bad trades I have. Like, mm. so many bad like I couldn't even, like, I could be here for hours telling you about my bad trades. But that one in particular, because really, I just said, I understand how Wall Street works. I understand how banks work, more or less. Mm. It's kind of in my wheelhouse. And you really should not trade below tangible if you're an ongoing concern that makes a profit. And they were making a profit. They were adding, the tangible book at the time was like 70. By the way, tangible for Citibank now, mm. well, in a second, they were adding like 2 or $3 a year, $4 a year to tangible. Mm. They're, they're making a profit. And it's like, how do I lose on this on this thing? And, and lo and behold, it, you know, down it went, and and you know, it got to the point where it's like, well, no, I'm not going to wait to see this movie ends. I'm out of this thing, and I got out and took my. It was, it was probably the biggest trading loss mm. I ever ever actually took. I put on more of this trade than I thought I, I probably should have, and, and but it was really like, it was just getting hung up on this value construct, right. and I really was not thinking about why is this stock trading, you know. Under tangible, like it mm. made. I mean, and what uh, was the time so, period from when you executed the trade and when got, it went down to the seventy percent? Into the trade in um, late two thousand nineteen. As a matter of fact, I actually have. I wrote about this trade. Mm. It's in my library. So about this ticket because I thought it was such a good idea. Mm. And then you know the stock went from you know on the seventy ish down to forty ish, and you know when, when it got to like when it got to like fifty two, it's like. I just pulled the plug and said, I'm out. It got down to 41. The stock is now at, it went all the way back to 85. So I'm sad. Mm. The stock's now like 45. And do you know what tangible is? No. 85. Tangible went from 70-ish to 85 in the last four years. This stock is still down basically 50% right. where it was a year ago. And how would you summarize the lessons that you learned from this? When something is trading well below what you think value is, you got to look at why, why is that? What mm. don't I know? Someone knows, I, I'm in Chicago, markets are efficient. They're not always efficient. There are markets gap around. And, you know, the whole stock market got rinsed in COVID and then it came, it's come all the way back up. So you had COVID. That's why everyone's, everyone's in, a, in a liquidity move. I mean, you saw stocks and bonds and gold all go down. That shouldn't have happened. It should have been one mm. or the other. Whatever. You had a liquidity crisis. Okay? So that made sense. I was just playing value over there, and I didn't appreciate that it was trading below book for a reason. And the reason, I, I think the reason is that Citibank has never managed to integrate all their businesses together. Mm. Um, and they're making money and this and that, but for some reason, they can't make it work. And everyone else has made it work or gotten close to it. You see Bank of America, which was obviously, a, I mean, they bought Countrywide, which and Wells Fargo, they, I mean, they, they took a massive loss on, on their shenanigans. But uh, Goldman Sachs, I mean, Morgan Stanley, I mean, I mean, why can't Citibank do it? I don't know. It's not I'll, I'll say this one, one thing, which is 
if you really want to talk about the biggest loss I ever took, but it wasn't my loss, more opportunity. So Bear Stearns gets into a pickle in 2007 and, you know, for subprime mess. And Mark went down, they came back up, this and that. And, I, and then things started going down again in a way. And my boys, who at the time were, I don't know, thinking 12, 14, 15, they say, uh, and they, they've seen Bear kind of go under, or I've spoken about it. I'm not sure why a 15 would care. Pa, can, can Merrill go bankrupt? And I said, no, we can't go bankrupt. I mean, we at the time, we owned 49% of BlackRock, okay? 49% of BlackRock we owned. Uh, sorry, Bear, you're talking about Bear Lynch. Merrill Lynch. Lynch owned 49% of BlackRock. Look at BlackRock now, and we own 49% of that. The reason why is that Merrill gave our entire asset management business to BlackRock, mm. put them together, and we took a minority stake. The trade was supposed to go to Morgan Stanley or someone else, but they wanted 51%. Mm. Our guys said, we'll let you go be the majority yep. owner. Genius <clears throat> trade. Yep. We owned 20% of Bloomberg. Okay, And by the way, we used to own a lot more than that. We Merrill Lynch was the financial backer of mm. Michael Bloomberg. Because Solomon wouldn't do it. They, they'd already right. fired him before. And we owned, at the time, 20% of, of Bloomberg was worth, I don't know, 10 billion. It was, it was, it was yeah. gigantic numbers. And then we had the investment bank and we had the South Tower, which was the stockbrokers. Mm. Merrill's the biggest <clears throat> stockbroker in the world at the time with, I don't know, mm. 12,000 stockbrokers, yep. right? And then with the investment bank. And I'm thinking the investment bank could be worth zero. And the company is still worth, you know, 40, 50 billion. Like, how would you possibly get the investment bank worth negative 50 billion? Turns out if you own 45 billion CDOs that go, you indeed can be worth negative 40 billion. And so there we were. We got we, went, we got bought by Bank America, hmm. um, which was very sad. I owned a lot of stock. Actually, I owned a lot of options, not stock, right. options <clears throat> at Merrill Lynch that were well in the money when the mm. stock was trading at 95, not so right. much in the money being at 12. So I won't say it was a loss per se. It was just an opportunity loss. I, I, I cashed in my options and sold stock over the years. But I mean, you know, I did not sell Merrill Lynch. You know, mm. I didn't sell all my stock out in 07. I mean, which would have been insane to do. I mean, yeah. Merrill Lynch had, had huge drawdowns in, in 92. I mean, sorry, in 94, had drawdown in 98, a drawdown in you know, so I mean, you no, know, it just kind of goes like that. I mean, mm. yeah. and I, I wasn't on margin; I wasn't levered, so I wasn't being margin called. But you know, clearly, you want to talk about dollar loss? Yeah. That was that yeah. was it. I was, I mean, I was a senior managing director mm. for twenty six years. I, I I had plenty of stock and options. Yeah. So. so maybe I'll just summarize a couple of takeaways. The first one is I was a bank analyst in Thailand from nineteen ninety three until two thousand three which was the tail end of our 85, 1985 to 1995, you know, massive boom. And then by that time, the banks were starting to, you know, collapse under the weight of their loans. And there was a lot of, lot of different things going on. But typically, Thai banks just lend money. They don't invest in securities so much in the old days. And so if you look at, and they didn't buy other companies, you know, so they didn't have any goodwill. So it was all tangible book. 
and the interest rate risk wasn't there. Like you can look at U.S. banks and they're sitting on a huge portfolio of government bonds, as an example, or maybe other types of bonds that, you know, there's an interest rate risk. If interest rates go up, the value of that portfolio falls. But what happened was that people didn't pay back loans and our non-performing loan ratio went to pretty much the highest in the world in a banking crisis, which was 55%. Oh my God. That's yeah. a big number. Yeah, it's huge. And so basically nearly about 50% of the total GDP of Thailand in assets of companies went through the bankruptcy process that they they created a whole new bankruptcy process and streamlined it and did a lot of stuff because they had to deal with all of that. So when I look at tangible book and I look at the balance sheet and I look at the loans, I always, you know, come from it from a perspective that you know, that the value of those assets could fall. Now in America, it's a lot different. There's a lot more legal safeguards for banks and they're a lot more conservative, maybe, you know, I think a lot, a lot has changed over time. So the idea of even having a five or 10 or 15% loss on that is pretty, pretty low. But the reason why in my, my perspective as a bank analyst, the reason why banks never trade at premiums to their book value that are large and sustainable, except in rare cases, is because of the risk of that loan portfolio or of that bond portfolio that you have a sliver of equity in a bank, maybe 10% of assets are financed with equity, maybe 15% versus on average, a typical company is about 40%. And so therefore, that sliver of equity is not a problem unless that loan portfolio or that bond portfolio gets just a little bit of a hit. And then next thing you know, that equity could be gone. So for the big takeaway from my perspective for listeners out there is a little bit different. You know, what I'm talking about is a little bit different from what you're talking about, which is the goodwill, the acquisition of companies, and then saying, you know, this goodwill, we should be gaining from what we've paid for. And the goodwill on the acquiring bank's balance sheet is basically saying, I'm willing to pay higher than fair value for this other bank or this other asset, because I think I can make a lot more out of that by bringing that into my business. Either I can make it more efficient or I can distribute its products through my platform or whatever that is. And so my main takeaway for everybody is just, you know, be very careful when investing in banks because mainly because of that sliver of equity, how that sliver of equity gets hit you know, it can be many different ways. Anything you would add to that? I'll give you what I think is the most important thing, save it for the end. When you make an investment, invest enough so there's you can make a material gain, a gain that's worthwhile, hmm. not so much as you'll get taken out. What that means is sizing is more important than entry level. Don't try to pick tops and bottoms. You're not going to do it. As a matter of you try, you'll probably get it backwards. Forget timing. Size the investment. Pick the size such that you'll make enough. If you're right, you'll make money that enough that it's worthwhile. But if you're wrong, you won't get wiped out. And that's the most important thing. Sizing is more important than entry level. Yep. That's great, great advice. So let's think about all the experience you have and let's go back in time to that particular Citibank trade. And I was a head of research at Citibank here in Thailand. And so I have a little bit of connection there, but based on what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? I think 
don't fall into a value trap. It's easy to do. And the value traps are very, very obvious. The other thing is be careful of single names. Single mm. names are really tricky because you get this lightning bolt effect. So if you think back on the five, 10 years ago, remember when British Petroleum had that punched a hole in the, in the, in the, in the ocean and mm. the, the, all, the, all the oil came out? If you look at the time, Chevron, Shell, BP, Total, um, they all had about the same PE, about the same dividend, about the same everything. You know, the five majors, they're mm. all the same. And BP pushed a hole in the ground and blew up and, and the stock's down 40%. Is there any way that you could know which one of those fives would take a lightning bolt? No. And so when you're doing single names, be really careful because away from all your, your good work, which can make you right, there's always this kind of lottery effect that you can never predict. And even, even a solid company like BP, I mean, that was that hurt. That hurt. Yeah. Uh, same thing, Exxon Valdez, you know, 30 years ago. Where'd yeah. that come from? I mean, the guy, the guy, he got some seasoned old pilot driving the boat on through there. How's he going to know? So, mm. Yep. Be careful, that, be careful, be careful of single names. Yep. That's great advice. I wrote a paper a long time ago called 10 Stocks Are Enough in Asia, with the idea being that if you want to balance between risk and return, I would say the sweet spot for an individual is 10 stocks. You add, you just build a portfolio of one or two, you're dead. But if you build a portfolio of 20 or 30, you might as well own an instrument such as a mutual fund or an index type of ETF. Let me ask you, what's a resource, either of yours or any other resource that you'd recommend for our listeners? Oh, boy. You know, I just rarely do single name stuff. I tend to be a macro thinker. So I mm. kind of look at the, at the big numbers. I really try to use common sense mm. and figure out, you know, what am I missing? Right. Why am I buying this? And someone else has not figured it out before me, unless I'm just buying into the generic, you know, rate or I'm buying as a, as a long-term buy and hold. I, I tend to have a like a five-year horizon. Right. I just don't think I'm smart enough to go and, and do anything right over the course of a year. Mm. I've done it for a very long time. And I, I just... I have to admit that I just am not going to go and outsmart somebody in yep. general on these things. Yep. And I'll I'll mention about the Maven mantra. Yeah, sure. For those of you who are meeting me for the first time, let me recite my mantra. Number one, it's always about character. Number two, it's never different this time. And number three, you are born, you live, and then you die prioritize your life. So I think that's a great resource right there. Check it out at convexitymaven.com. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Jeez. <laughs> what got you off the sofa? That's what I want to know, out of retirement. I mean, financially, I, 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 I we're introducing a brand new ETF at the beginning of next month. But away from that, you know, I have four kids, Having to be healthy. I have, I have my first grandchild came three months ago. You know, focus on things like that. You know, don't don't, don't get buried in the office. You, you, look, you got to work hard, and I assure you, I worked very long hours. But as a, you're born, you live, you die, and you're dead much longer than you think. So um, take your vacation, go with your family, enjoy your kids. Everybody is replaceable. Okay, yes. the graveyards are full of irreplaceable people. 
yes, take a walk in a graveyard and it can really push that, that home, you know, that message home. Someone once said to me, the grim reaper is undefeated. All right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. As we conclude, Harley, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? We're good, man. Just be careful. Be safe. And that's a wrap on another great story to create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.